This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the city of New York. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Sam Sia, who's a professor of biomedical engineering at Columbia and also the faculty director for Columbia Entrepreneurship within the engineering school. We'll be talking today about a whole bunch of stuff, about him launching three different startup companies over his career, about his work in microfluidics and why fluids behave differently at this incredibly small scale and how that can be put to use for human health and diagnostics. Uh, we'll be talking about why he started Harlem Biospace, which is a biotech incubator adjacent to campus that's hosted over 70 startups and how that's changed as New York City has become a thriving uh, ecosystem for bioscience startups, especially how West Harlem is changing and why it's a great place for building innovative startups. And also the role that failure plays in his work and in science in general and how that helps to shape the direction of his work going forward. Dr. Sia, thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe we can start by taking a step back. What kind of engineering work do you do in your lab in the Bi Department of Biomedical Engineering? Hey, Orrin, it's, it's good to be here. Um, so our lab works uh, mainly on miniaturizing medical devices. Uh, we do that for uh, devices that are outside the body, so diagnostic devices, so uh, diagnostics that are normally done in a big lab we can miniaturize it into uh, something that you can hold in your hand, something that you can even put on your body. Uh, but we also work on devices that are implantable, so we can also put them in your body and we can communicate with them uh, as well. What kind of devices, like what, what kind of diagnostics might this work for? Maybe you can give us an example of an actual project you're working on. Yeah, so um, we worked on uh, uh, different projects, but you know, one example is uh, something pretty familiar to everyone now, which, which are these point-of-care diagnostic tests where you can prick uh, your, your finger with, and get a drop of blood and really uh, be able to detect different types of biomarkers uh, in, in that uh, specimen. And you can do this, uh, hopefully, in all sorts of locations. So we've tested it in Africa on uh, HIV and uh, sexually transmitted infections uh, there. Uh, we, and we, we've done uh, a version of this, which has been spun out into the U.S. market for prostate cancer and a doctor's office. Uh, so, so that's uh, that's an example. But we're also trying to work on things again that you can wear, that you can put in your body, that can both sense markers and also uh, deliver drugs, for example. So let's take the one for uh, that you're that you developed for HIV that's being deployed in Africa. What does that literally look like? Yeah, so it's uh, it, it's using a technology called mi microfluidics, and what microfluidics is is really just uh, a set of tools to handle really small amounts of fluids. A lot of medical biomedical processes today rely on pipetting, uh, liquid handling, and the idea is: can you uh, miniaturize all of that into something you can just automate? in the palm of your hand, kind of like microelectronics, right? Like usually, it, it, once, you know, decades ago, used to take up a lot of space and now it's been completely miniaturized. So there could be a similar revolution if we can miniaturize fluidics. So really something you, you have in your hand and, and press a button uh, and, uh, and perform these lab tests, uh, same quality as a lab test, but uh, anywhere in the world, and it's starting to take place, as you can see uh, right now in the pandemic. I, I, it sounds to me like when I think of microfluidics, 
um, you know, I think of channeling something, uh, not being a scientist, I think of something channeling water at sort of a human scale level. Um, does it, does water behave differently at small, at these smaller levels that makes it more complicated? Like, why is that hard? Well, yeah, that, that it's interesting because the fluid physics at a small scale are actually uh, fundamentally different from what it is at, at everyday, everyday scale. So, you know, um, I, I remember watching the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, you know, I'm pro probably dating myself or ourselves <laughs> here. Uh, but, you know, it, it's not quite like that, where it's just everyday experience shrunk into a little submarine, if, if you were that small. Because um, really, the, the way the fluid flows, it flows in, in uh, streams that are straight, instead of uh, turbulent mixing and so forth. So there are some special behavior you have to account for. Uh, but on the other hand, there are some uh, commonalities with like plumbing in your house and stuff like that. Things get clogged up. In fact, it's a little bit more exaggerated for microfluidics because it's easy to clog up things with dust and so forth. So, so there's a little bit of just sort of everyday plumbing, but there are uh, a number of things you can do that exploit uh, micro scale fluid physics that can let you uh, mix things I can let you move fluids around um, you know but uh, but one of the challenges here is that thing it, it is literally you know a messy uh, sort of situation unlike moving electrons around not that that's easy but uh, but when you're talking about uh, miniaturizing fluidics and, and biochemical procedures uh, you've got to get the variability down uh, otherwise, uh, you just have a test that has, you know, quite a large, uh, you know, scale of variability. So, so that's that's something that the field and our lab uh, are trying to address. In terms of controlling the flow of the, of the fluids, is this primarily sort of a physical process? Is this like propellers and gates and the the materials used for the walls, or is this a a chemical process or an electrical process? Like, what are the tools you're engaging with to keep that fluid going the way you want it to go? Yeah, the, 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 so it could be all of the above. I mean, you know, there's more futuristic things people are working on, including our lab, like making little robots. And there you can propel objects uh, using different types of reactions, but uh, not quite like that uh, for most of the devices. It's a little bit more simple. You, you either apply pressure at an inlet uh, or uh, apply vacuum at an outlet, and you just sort of suck all the fluids through a channel. Uh, but uh, but then you need a way to uh, apply that pressure. Um, but there, you know, there's all sorts of microfluidic methods. Uh, one that uh, a lot of people are familiar with is actually just based on uh, tests that people have used for pregnancy or things like that, where it's paper-based or membrane-based uh, tests. And there the, the fluid just wicks across the membrane uh, through capillary action. Typically, the engineering school is funded by the NSF in many ways, and but but your work also connects to other disciplines that the NIH might care more about. And so, um, where does the funding for your work, by and large, come from? Yeah, I think you know this this field of microfluidics is finding its way into so many different areas now. Uh, the funding possibilities, even just speaking for our lab, are pretty broad. It really depends on the application. So, yes, NSF for more fundamental advances, but obviously NIH, when it comes to a lot of the medical, biomedical applications we're interested in, but also foundations, you know, for things like global health or certain uh, special diseases. Um, 
there, there's more and more collaborations with industry because obviously this is a pretty foundational technology for a lot of different types of app applications potentially. Um, so really it's becoming less about um, microfluidics and miniaturization and more about what is it that we're trying to accomplish that sort of determines which funding agency is interested and of course uh, the defense as well, uh, like the DOD and DARPA. Uh, so it really spans the fundamental to the applied to even uh, industry across the board. And, and of course, this funding that we get from uh, the government is incredibly uh, important uh, to actually advance the work, um, whether it's NSF or NIH or, or uh, DARPA. Uh, without that, uh, we wouldn't be able to test a lot of these ideas um, because uh, as exciting as the commercial possibilities are, uh, there's a lot of work that has to go into really validating uh, what we're trying to do. Uh, and, uh, and so it's absolutely imperative that we have uh, that support from the federal uh, funding mechanisms. Because of the interdisciplinary nature of your work, I, I see that you've got, you know, your primary appointment is at the Columbia Engineering School, but your lab is actually up at the medical school. Um, and in fact, it's in a building where we have our new Alexandria Launch Labs uh, Biomedical Accelerator. And so in some ways, your role seems to encompass uh, so much of what Columbia does. How has it been to be an interdisciplinary scientist working at the, at the boundary of engineering and medicine here at Columbia? I mean, being at the intersection of technology and, and medicine, I mean, that, that's really the whole reason uh, I, I, I love what I'm doing. Uh, I can't think of anything more exciting that, than that. Uh, there's been so many uh, revolutions in, in what's gone on in, in the world, but, but I think the, the, the pace of uh, biomedical innovations, especially when it comes to devices, it's really just scratching the surface, uh, and and especially you know a, a lot of that can come from miniaturization. Now, at Columbia, it's a perfect environment, as you said. My lab is at the medical center, um, and that really facilitates a lot of interactions with with clinicians. Although when my lab was back in the Morningside campus, it was also fine because the campuses are not that far apart. Uh, but now with this focal point. Uh, uh, at, at, or a focal point, at least, in the medical campus at, at this building, Lasker, as you mentioned, uh, where there's also a hub of commercial activities. One of my, one of my startup companies is up at, the, at that incubator. Um, it's really becoming uh, easier uh, to, to do that. But also, I think it's, it's also a bit of a cultural shift that I've noticed. It's not just about where you're located. It's about everyone's willingness to work together on this. And we have a lot of strengths at Columbia, both in engineering and in medicine, obviously world-class researchers. And it's about bringing all of that together in a very collaborative way uh, to uh, not, you know, do, do, do really a, a range of things. So it, it's about uh, therapeutics, but it's also, again, for what I do uh, about making these uh, device, sort of device-based uh, sensors, but also therapeutics uh, that uh, uh, that I think uh, could have a, a huge impact in the way we think about medicine in the future. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's the perfect environment I think uh, to do that from from my perspective. 
you mentioned the startup that's upstairs from your office. I, I presume that's Rover. Um, maybe you can yeah. tell us a little bit about Rover and what it does. Yeah, uh, Rover is a, is a startup that is working on a rapid uh, PCR test. And, and I think we all know what PCR is. I, I've never seen this much uh, press about PCR. I never thought about, I would read about it in newspapers like this, but it's, you know, it stands for polymerase chain reaction. It's sort of the gold standard test uh, for uh, detecting nucleic acids uh, like DNA and RNA. This is what makes up the, the genome, um, genomic information in our cells. Uh, as opposed to proteins, which are the molecules that actually perform the, a lot of the functions. Uh, and uh, and the previous test I was telling you about detects proteins. This test uh, it detects uh, nucleic acids like DNA and RNA. And um, and for a lot of conditions, you want to detect uh, DNA and RNA as well. And so, uh, and what Rover is working on is a rapid. Uh, and a field deployable method to do PCR. So the gold standard, you don't have to sacrifice one or the other, you know, you don't have to uh, do a lab-based gold standard, but then the rapid test is sort of less than the gold standard. We want to offer that gold standard test in, uh, in, in a rapid format. Uh, it, and, um, and yeah, it, that, that, that's what we're working on there. And we started it before the COVID pandemic for uh, other conditions, but, Obviously, uh, since, since what's happened, we have pivoted to uh, working on COVID. Uh, but really, this is something that I think a lot of people are going to want in the future. Uh, it's been talked about for a long time. Uh, and now uh, I think uh, it's really probably going to accelerate just as a whole, not, not just COVID and pandemic preparation, but just uh, the whole uh, digital health about monitoring for uh, nucleic uh, monitoring for uh, diseases uh, uh, in in a sort of a decentralized manner. Uh, I think it's it's really going to accelerate. So yeah, we're, that's what we're uh, working on there. And what does Microfluidics allow you to do for Rover that other companies approaching the same goal of trying to do rapid tests for diseases can't do? Yeah, so we're so so Rover is working on a little bit of Microfluidics. Uh, but in general, uh, it allows you to simplify a lot of pipetting steps and a lot of uh, what we call sample preparation steps. Because if you if you think about doing a lot of these diagnostics, it's not just one step or one procedure. It's a series of steps and procedures that are linked together. That's what happens in a lab when when you send a sample back. That's what a lot of lab procedures are. It's it, you have to prepare the sample. You might have to filter things. You might have to centrifuge it. You might have to then heat it up. You have to mix things together. And all these things can be done in one way or another, or at least analogs to them in the microfluidic system where it's all inline and integrated with each other. So you don't have to take things out and back, put them back into the chip. You can build them into the chip in a way where they're all just done sort of one after another. And so you press the button to start and, the, and everything will just run itself. Uh, so that's really the promise is you can take these multi-step reactions and actually do it in an automated way. You've been scientist at, at world-leading academic institutions for your entire career, if I remember correctly. You started off at MIT, is that right? 
I started off, uh, yeah, at Harvard, working at MIT, uh, which is kind of a weird uh, <laughs> arrangement, <laughs> actually, for a PhD, uh, and then did a postdoc at Harvard, and yep, and you know, got my first uh, job at Columbia. Right. So you've been at these world-leading institutions, and I think most people would look at that and be like, yeah, that's pretty good. I've, I've done well in my career. Um, you started off there, which is fantastic. But then on top of that, you, Rover's not even your first startup. You've, I don't know how many you've launched at this point um, across your career. Two other ones. Yeah. So you've launched, you've launched three startups now so far. So clearly, entrepreneurship must be important to you because you're managing to make time to do it outside of your you know, already busy scientific career. Um, not to mention Harlem Biospace, which we'll come back to in a little bit. So clearly, this is an important part of your worldview and your work in some view, in some way. And, and I'm just wondering why. What about launching companies is appealing to you and, and something you make time for? Uh, yeah, I mean, f first of all, I, I just think it's incredibly fun and interesting. You know, it's uh, it's about really sort of engaging with the world. It's uh, it's really you know participating, almost having this active conversation with with everything that's going on in the world. Um, and it's it's a perfect marriage of academia where we have this um, ability to go after whatever scientific questions we want, but sort of marrying that with trying to make an impact on the world in a very timely way. Um, I mean, I think if you, you know, sort of just look through the history of, of important inventions, it's, it's not developed in a vacuum. It's developed, you know, in response to something that's going on in the world and to be at that interface. So, so certainly basic research is absolutely critical to laying the foundation to all of this. And uh, without that, uh, we wouldn't really be anywhere. Uh, but then if one, you know, uh, wants to be at this intersection uh, of, of translating, developing innovations, but then translating it to impact on the world, um, it, it, I, I think, you know, not, not only is it, number one, interesting to sort of... Uh, have that ability to make an impact on people's lives, or at least aspire to that. But but number two, it's just uh, you know it, it it just makes you feel uh, really uh, alive, you know, uh, in this process because you can see what's going on in the world, you can think about the challenges, and then you can try try to actually do something about that and make an impact. Yeah, so I think that that's what you know uh, keeps me uh, keep working towards that goal. Right. And it actually aligns very well with, I mean, you know, what President Bollinger talks about, the fourth purpose, this idea that the modern university isn't only about creating, pushing the boundaries of knowledge and creating new ideas and, and, and uh, not only about teaching the next generation of students and not only about engaging with your community, but also about making a real world impact. And it does sound like that's, that's something that resonates strongly in your work. I, I, I want to come back to the making an impact of your, on your community, though, which I think is the sort of third purpose of those four purposes. You know, in terms of having real world impact, you you not only were doing the science and also launching your startups, but you also created this really unique space. Uh, in this case, both I think sort of intellectual space and also physical space, called Harlem Biospace, and and you did it at a time when I don't think it was obvious that New York was going to be this biotech capital that it is, um, and so maybe. Uh, you know, I've I've been following the the Harlem Biospace journey the, since the beginning. But um, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about what Harlem Biospace is about, the kinds of activities it engages in, it, and and why you why you decided to engage in the New York e bioscience ecosystem like this? 
Yeah, uh, Harlan Biospace is a biotech incubator. We, I think most of us know what that is now. Uh, back then, like you said, it wasn't as popular an idea, but it's, it's sort of a co-working space, but it's a co-working lab uh, where different companies can be in, in the space and share the resources. So not everybody has to start up um, and buy a whole bunch of capital you know, equipment just to even uh, start as an ante you know, to, to getting started. Uh, here, uh, you can just get started because a lot of that lab and equipment are, are already available. And you know, we've hosted uh, a lot of companies now. I, it's hard to keep track. I think it's over 60 or 70 companies. We've started uh, since 2013 with support from the mayor's office. Uh, something I did in my uh, sort of unofficial or, or outside of Columbia. Um, uh, and, uh, and I, you know, I, I did that to really sort of scratch my own itch because I was, um, uh, I think, trying to do another startup company uh, where we got SBIR funding, actually, but I couldn't really find a space to do it. There was literally no lab location I could find in Manhattan. And I did find a location um, for the SBIR grant, but it was, you know, an hour and 20 minutes away from, from my lab. No, no, no matter how I do it, you know, uh, whether I drive or yeah. take the subway. And so nothing in Manhattan. Uh, and, um, and, and so I decided to try to build a lab. And, but, but why, if I'm going to do that, why not just build a resource for, you know, everyone else as well? Because it's not only myself that has this... Um, issue. And I know the city was trying to uh, do something like that. But at the time, um, it was difficult to get a lot of uh, sort of traditional players to buy into that concept, because it was just not really what they do. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not the, it's just not what they do did uh, in, in the biotech um, uh, real estate space. And so, you know, a, a little private individual like me, you know, uh, then had that opportunity to, to work with the city to do that. And, and also this was uh, pretty soon after I got tenure, I should say, uh, I probably would not have done this uh, as, a, as a junior investigator, but, you know, but, but back to what you said about the fourth purpose, right? I, uh, not, not that I would probably still do it at this point, but I think that kind of work, which is seen as, a, as certainly a distraction, probably building a real estate uh, space, but even just working on commercialization, you know, in general was could have been seen as a distraction at some point for a budding academic. I think it's being more valued now. Uh, and that's, you know, what we're calling uh, what President Bollinger is referring to as the fourth purpose at, at our university. But it, it's, uh, it's something that I think is uh, potentially, you know, um, an important uh, part of what academics uh, can try to do. Uh, is to try to to make uh, an, an impact uh, on the world through their research and applying that research. So, uh, so anyway, you know that that was what I was trying to do with uh, with Harlem Biospace, and um, and you know doing it in Harlem is also fantastic. You know I've met a lot of great community uh, players here. Uh, it's really a rich, uh, fantastic community of people. Uh, and so, I, uh, you know, it's been a pretty unique uh, experience um, having this, uh, building this resource. And when you actually, it's interesting because when even, again, 12, 10, 15 years ago, the, the community has changed so much in the last decade. Um, as you've seen, like you, Harlem Biospace was there before Manhattanville. Um, Columbia's new campus was really starting to come up from the ground. And now here we are 
with the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute is open and thriving. The forum is open and thriving. Uh, the business school is going to be opening there in a month or two um, for January classes. Um, and you know, then you lay around the Advanced Science Research Center for CUNY and City College and the New York Structural Biology Center. It just seems like West Harlem, Washington Heights and Inwood um, is you know, an incredibly vibrant place for science these days. And I'm wondering if that, if you've seen that change the nature of the types of companies that are coming through or anything about your Harlem biospace experience. Yeah, I mean, you're giving me a layup oppor opportunity here um, to, to you know, but you know, I, I mean, I, I'm biased uh, in a way, but but I don't think I'm too biased. I, I think, you know, this uh, this environment around Columbia, the West Harlem, uh, and, and beyond here uh, is really, you know, the best place in New York for building an innovation corridor uh, that is close to you know, a great university. And, and you see that in places like in Boston, the Bay Area, et cetera. And right now we have a lot of scattered um, innovation places in, in the city, but this is one where it's, it's amazing. We have this multi-billion dollar academic expansion in Manhattanville at Columbia. We have CUNY, which is also very strong uh, as well. In fact, uh, the, the two places, uh, you know, universities just collaborated with the new Pandemic Response Institute that was announced by the mayor. Uh, and so it's, it's and, and now the whole area, I think, uh, is poised to become a hub of innovation that will, will be the premier hub in New York City. And there's also real estate space for life sciences that is becoming available as well. So I think, you know, we, we need some companies to just be aware. Uh, but both the biggest players as well as startups to be aware of what is going on here because it's quite special. I think it's going to be the next Kendall Square, the next Mission Bay area in, in the in the country. Um, and um, and I think you know another exciting part there is to really do this with with the community. Uh, and um, we're we're doing it in a, in a space where we're, it's not just vacant space that we're moving into. It's it's a populated area. But I don't think that has to be uh, a barrier that can be done in a very uh, unique and special way where we work with our community. And, um, and uh, in a way, uh, you know, the Pandemic Response Institute, not to get too sidetracked, I think focuses on engaging with the community. But it's, uh, but it's also a way of the future for how we introduce new innovations into the world. It's, it's, it's a bi-directional conversation, this usability uh, analysis. And not just sort of, uh, you know, unidirectional uh, um, way. So uh, I think there's a lot of potential for rethinking how innovation is done in a rich and diverse area like New York City. Uh, and, and hopefully we will do that here around the, the Columbia campus. So you talk about getting these innovations out of the lab and into the market. Um, and you know, I think many people aren't necessarily familiar with the role, the, the way that a, a faculty member sort of bridges that. Like, how, you've got your life in the university and your life in the startup. Was Did Columbia play any role in helping get these innovations, you know, into the startup companies? Or was this something where it was really about just, like, letting letting you go do that? Well, no, I mean, Columbia has played a huge role. And, you know, I'll, I'll even just back up for a second. I, I You know, I was, I really was thrilled to, uh, get a job here at Columbia because uh, not only do we do great science, but we're in New York City. And that has so many unique opportunities for uh, for really engaging with the world. 
that a lot of uh, other great academic medical uh, academic institutions, uh, both engineering and medical, uh, may not have because they're in not not in a place like New York City. Um, and so all those opportunities are there in terms of uh, being able to to support commercialization. Now, Columbia at a time when I joined was not as interested in this topic. <laughs> Uh, and uh, but I think it's shifted almost 180 degrees uh, during the time I've been here, uh, around the same time that you've been here, right, or in the yeah, last no, absolutely. Or 16 it's been a years. Yeah. It's completely changed. You know, your office has done an incredible job uh, of uh, uh, not only just licensing things, but also introducing new mechanisms. And my lab has been the beneficiary of a number of those programs, which I won't bore the listener with exactly the acronyms of everything. But uh, there's been a lot of these seed pilot funding mechanisms, as well as support for fallows and things like that. And our engineering school as well, you know, has done a lot. Uh, and, and I think in, in some ways uh, have been leading uh, a lot of uh, work in this area. But uh, but the other schools as well, the business school, the medical center have, have, uh, have also, you know, uh, done an incredible amount. And so, uh, again, I can point to a lot of specific projects in our lab. Uh, we're working on a cuffless blood pressure measurement device that you can wear that's actually accurate uh, and a lot of other things we're, we're building that were uh, that specifically benefited from these seed mechanisms and uh, and again bringing to, uh, investors and outside stakeholders into the process through boot camps and things like that uh, and they're around New York City um, and you know we, we, we also think about the ethics also you know and, and I think that's pretty unique. Uh, not only do we do great science, but being in New York, we're very aware of that. So not just developing technology for its own sake. Uh, so yes, we want to do it in a way that's going to be financially sustainable, uh, but but also doing it in, in working on things that will make a positive impact in people's lives. Uh, and Columbia has a lot of these mechanisms in place to, to support that. And so it, it's not by accident, I think, you know, we have leadership here at Columbia that is doing that, but also we're in an environment in New York City that really lends itself to both commercialization and doing things, I think, ethically uh, uh, well. So uh, it's all happening right now. Uh, and yeah, really, really exciting. Yeah, well, that's great. And, you know, it, hearing you talk, it, it almost sounds like I, I'm 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 thinking of an image of like a you know an an archer who every time they pull back the bow the arrow goes straight into the target direct bullseye and you just do it over and over and over again and you've got all these people cheering you on and you've got all the resources you need and everything's just a perfect success, and and I'm imagining that that is probably a glorified image of what your life is like. Um, so maybe like what what role does experimentation and failure play in your science and your commercialization efforts? Uh, not everything can be a success, I presume. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is something I try to, you know, t tell my PhD students as well, just sharing my own experience. Uh, and and I'm, I'm sure there's people out there who are uh, just, you know, smarter or, or, or and or luckier than me, but I, I've never had any successful experience without a ton of failures. Uh, and maybe because I'm just unlucky, but that's been my own experience. And, you know, um, the more things I try to do, the more I fail. Uh, and I think, uh, and I've seen that, you know, with, with people, a lot of people who, who I admire, you know, um, as well. And so I think that's just part of the game. And I think you just sort of have to, uh, you know, build up to, to expecting that you've just have to expect that, uh, there's going to be challenges and, and it's not without reason. I mean, 
you know, when, when a grant gets rejected or a paper gets rejected or something doesn't work in the lab, you know, it's kind of like what Thomas Edison said, right? I, I went out and he was trying to find that magic filament uh, for his light bulb and he kept uh, not finding it. It was not a failure. It was just, you know, 99 out of 100 ways for it not to work. And that's progress. And the market is telling you something. And you usually your idea benefits if you sort of don't, you know, be defensive about it. Um, and, you know, uh, and, and so, yeah, you know, I think it's just uh, working towards that, that goal, knowing it's not going to be your initial uh, vision, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. You have to pivot, you have to adapt, and you, all, you have to have some emotional resilience <laughs> as well, because I think, you know, uh, things will, uh, you know, you're going to get setbacks for sure. I think we all know that, you know that, you know, um, you know uh, all of us who try to do uh try to do you know big things uh but um but i think for a lot of the younger students coming up you know that's something that they really deserve to know um because they only hear about the successes usually i'm guessing that when you were a kid you didn't like when you were you know five or six and and you're in kindergarten you weren't saying you know i want to be a biomedical engineer working on microfluidics in an academic environment necessarily um and you know you've had this amazing career and and really you're just you're you're still you know rising um in many ways but what was the other like what else would you have been doing do you think did you have another alternate career that you thought you might want to do or was this always what you knew you wanted to do yeah when i was in elementary school you know i immigrated uh, born in Hong Kong, immigrated to Canada and grew up there. I remember my dream career was, first of all, to be a journalist, to uncover the truth uh, behind things. Then I wanted to be a programmer uh, at IBM because uh, that seemed like, I don't know, the dream job. Hmm. Um, and I think as I learned more about the world, you know, the more I learned about myself and uh, really discovered, you know, read the great books about uh, Watson, you know, the, uh, Jim Watson, The Double Helix, Red Genius uh, by Gleek on Richard Feynman and thought, you know, this would be fantastic to be able to discover new truths about the world, really closer to basic science than applied research, uh, really all the way until my postdoc, when I really made that shift from basic to applied science. But I think, uh, you know, just like anyone else, my what I wanted to do sort of shifted probably was not until my postdoc when it sort of crystallized for me that academia would be my dream job. I always kept that option open. But I think, uh, uh, you know, I, I probably would be an entrepreneur if uh, if I wasn't an academic. Uh, I, I'm not that risk uh, taking a person. Uh, so I think it's, it's um, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I think I would have uh, been, uh, you know, a, a little bit more maybe risk averse than a, a great entrepreneur would be. But I think that's what I probably would have wanted to do ultimately if I didn't do academia. But I think, you know, there's always been this idea of making an impact on the world um, in some way or another. And, uh, you know, and what we're doing now is, is one way to achieve that. Dr. Sia, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Oren. It's been a pleasure.